I'd like to invite uh, Nick and Michelle Taylor, if y'all will come up here for just a minute. I know, Michelle, you're freaking out right now, but I'm not going to ask you to speak. Don't worry. Uh, today is a wonderful day. We're so excited. By the way, my name, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name is Matt Autry. I'm the pastor here at King's Church. And uh, today is a bittersweet day for us. We get to welcome in new members to our family. We are so excited about what God's doing in the life of our church and this, being able to worship in this facility for our third time and, and being able to be here. But it's also a bittersweet day because we have a wonderful couple that's actually been with us at King's Church for a long time, moving back home to Rock Hill um, and part of our goal at King's Church is to be able to send you, we'll actually talk about this a little bit today, to be able to send you into the places that God has put you into the lives of the people that are already around you to share the gospel. That means wherever you exist, the gospel goes if you're in Christ Jesus for the glory of God and his kingdom. And then eventually we want to send out missionaries and church planters all around the world uh, that's something that we're praying for and doing. And we have a way of doing that. And every time one of, uh, some, one of us leaves to go for a job or, or a new location, which is what you guys are doing right now. And so in a way, what I want to encourage you all to do is wherever you go, you bring the light of Christ with you. And you bring that into a congregation of God's people. Right, that you're going to join and be an instrumental part of, and also to the brand new neighborhood and community and all that stuff. And I know that y'all have been growing. This couple has been with us since we were six people, six to eight people in my living room uh, several years ago when King's Church got started. They were part of the first couple. Uh, I met uh, Michelle at CrossFit, uh, and that was a great. That was a well. The workout was terrible, but I enjoyed meeting you. It was fun to meet you that day, but. And, uh, and they, they kind of bought in early into this vision that we just talked about, about experiencing God, finding community, and live on purpose. And so we just want to praise the Lord uh, for you guys gave us years of your life to serve here, right? To serve here, and, and we're part of the family, and you're still part of God's family, but you get to go serve another local family. And we're excited about the next chapter of y'all's life. Typically during this section of our service, we pray together as a congregation. But what I'd like to do right now is just to pray for this couple. So y'all pray along with me as we're praying for them. And providentially, God's taking them to a new place, but the same God, the same Father to serve. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you that uh, in time and space, you work out your will in such a way that you bring people into our lives and Lord, they're, they're, the people that you bring into our lives are a blessing. And Lord, the Taylors have been a blessing to King's Church for the time that they've been here. And today's their last Sunday. And I'm sure at some point we'll see them again. Um, but Lord, they're moving to another part of the state. And Lord, I ask that as you take them and, the, and their family and their young marriage... Uh, God, that you would take them and you would be with them. That the Spirit, would, the Spirit of God would dwell in their home. God, that you would call Nick to be a, a wise and loving, a caring, a humble, and a courageous leader of this family. And that you would call Michelle, Lord, uh, to be what the Scriptures say. God, that his, be his help me who loves him, supports him, but always is also strong and tender for that family, and that their home and their lives and the new church that they go and get involved with will be able to experience the grace of God that is coming through them as they serve you. Lord, you're going to move them into a new neighborhood, and inside of that neighborhood is going to be people that don't know Christ. You're going to put them in a job, and they're inside that job there's going to be people who don't know Christ. 
and they're going to be able to love and encourage them. God, would you give them the words, the power, and the spirit? Would you be preparing those people even now as you're sending them out? And God, would you guard and protect this couple and also use them? Draw them closer to you and use them for your kingdom purposes and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love y'all. As we continue to worship God this morning, we come this morning expectantly. We come to hear from God. We come to bring praises to God. We come to celebrate in so many ways. And one of the aspects that we get a chance to worship every single week is to bring our tithes and offerings to God. It's a declaration of several things. One, I'm dependent upon you. Another thing is I am so excited and praising the Lord of what you have given me. And I give just a small part of it back to you like you commanded me to do. And the other thing we're saying is I'm entrusting that you'll take this little bit in my hand, just like Jesus took the little bit of bread and few fish, and will multiply it for his kingdom glory to see God's purposes go out into this community. All that and more we declare whenever we give our tithes and offerings to the Lord. If you'd like to do that online, we have a means to do that. Um, if you know about it, then if you use Tidely, you know about that. If not, our website has a Give tab. And also, there are offering plates right here uh, that you can come up now and put your offering in there or do so after the service. But let me encourage you to do this. Let us continue to worship as we give. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're returning after a long break uh, to the Gospel of John. And I'm real excited about that. We talked about the, the prologue to John's Gospel, which is one of the most beautiful chapters, those 14 verses at the beginning of the Gospel of John, one of the most beautiful and impactful words ever penned, a, probably the most accurate and, and, um, and powerful and concise descriptions of who Jesus Christ is in all of the Bible, packed into those first 14 verses, are the fact that, that Jesus Christ is not simply another teacher, he's not simply another prophet, he is God himself. And that he not only has the power and the scope and the wisdom of God, but he came and indwelt human flesh and remained 100% God and 100% man at the same time in order to give his life up as a sacrifice for us and connect us to God. Not just for a season so that we might have to make another sacrifice in a year or so, which is what the Old Testament was about, the system of sacrifices and things like that, so that we can permanently be united with God and him forever. And when we were talking about that chapter, we called it the glorious God-man. 
The glorious God-man, because it ends with the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. A beautiful description of who Jesus is. And then we took a break uh, as we were nominating elders and deacons uh, to talk about what, how does a church operate biblically? What does the Bible say about church Leadership. So we spent several weeks talking about what a pastor, an elder, uh, a deacon, what is membership in the church, a lot of those uh, types of things. And just for y'all's information, because I know some of you may have been wondering, whenever we made the transition from Palmetto Place to here, um, I, was, I had kind of put a pause on the training um, of our el- future elders and deacons. So we have, we have elders and deacons who have been nominated by the congregation, and then I'll be able to pick back up now that things are kind of stabilizing here um, at this Ben Lippin campus. And then hopefully sometime in the fall there will be an election. Right? So you'll have, tra- you'll have trained potential uh, candidates that we'll be voting on as a membership of King's Church. Just a brief update on that because we hadn't talked about it in about a month. But now we get a chance to return to the book of John, and we're going to talk about John the Baptist. And just to make a delineation today so that we don't all get confused, because we got John, the writer of this gospel, the writer of uh, this particular book of the Bible, and then John the Baptist. So I'm going to call John the writer, and then John the Baptist, all right? So just so we know what John we're talking about. And if I get confused and mismatch one of them, just make fun of me after the service. We'll have a good Uh, time after that. So John the writer summarizes his point of writing this book at the end of it in chapter 20 and verse 30. This is what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of, and is the, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, the goal of all that he put in here, John the writer was known, as he calls himself at least by this title, of the one that Jesus loved. The best I can tell to kind of summarize what he's saying there is he was almost like Jesus' kind of best friend on earth, right? At least it seemed that way from their association. It's almost in the inner circle of the inner circle, if you will, right? And he, so in other words, being that close to Jesus, he's got a lot of things he could say. Lots of things he could say. But he, on the tip of an arrow, tried to say only what he needed to say to convince you, to convince me, and to convince his specific audience that he's writing to when he's writing this down, the information that you need to know in order to believe that he's the son of God and that salvation only comes through him. You can only be right with God through Jesus Christ. So that's the goal. So everything that we read in this book is there for a reason. Okay? There are also three other gospels written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they have information. And sometimes John actually will write some things that, that he'll include some things that those guys didn't include. Okay? And sometimes he'll include that and he'll give a different perspective. So a, a little bit of time this morning will be devoted to kind of filling out the, some of the things that John doesn't say, John the writer, that John the writer doesn't say about John the Baptist in this passage. right? Because John only gives us a brief glimpse here of a specific episode. So I'll fill that out a little bit this morning. 
But here, what happens essentially in this passage is an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, comes to investigate John's ministry. He's having an extremely impactful ministry throughout all of Israel. And they're skeptical, and they come to examine him. And if we know anything from these same leaders who went after Jesus and killed him, their motives are probably not simply to investigate the matter. Right, but to find something to pin him down to shut him up, okay, and so that's what's happening in this passage, and we'll talk about that. But as a means of introduction, I want you to think about this. The title of the sermon is "The Power of a Witness." The power of a witness, and when we think about what it means to witness to something, it's a small thing, right? It's, I saw this, I heard this, I, I witnessed that, and I'm going to report that to you. It's a small thing. It's not a very complicated thing. But small things oftentimes have tremendous power. John the Baptist's ministry wasn't complicated, but it had a tremendous impact on the whole region. And the impact is still happening to this day. Oftentimes, there's profound things that happen that uh, that are just very small. I can't remember. One of you may have said this to me, and I just forgot who said it to me. So remind me after the service if it was you. But someone said to me, uh, they were talking with someone or listening to someone, and they said, the question was posed, what's the most powerful thing in the world? What's the most powerful thing in the world? And it wasn't like Sunday school, so everybody's like, Jesus, you know? It was, like, it was just a question. What's the most powerful thing in the world? And so people were saying things like, uh, you know, guns, nuclear bombs, democracy. I mean, there were all these kind of this huge impactful things, and the answer that the guy gave was a book. In other words, an idea is extremely powerful and can, and can get through. And I had talked with a guy uh, at a swim meet earlier this week, and he just was describing his very complex business and how all these things had to come together to make his, to make his business work and, and how all the sectors of the government were kind of converging to help him pull this off. And I had to stop him and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, have, I don't understand what you do at all, and you've been talking for 10 minutes. And he essentially says, my job is to take an idea from here to here. And I went, all right, I got you. He was in the idea business because ideas are powerful when they become realities. We were at an engagement, not engagement, we were at a um, wedding shower last night. It was great. We had a time where the uh, couple kind of asked a lot of couples that were, he had had four questions that he asked, uh, that the couple asked all the married couples in the room, and someone kind of emceed the whole thing. One of the questions was, this is a great question, I thought. It'd be a great question to talk about on the ride home or over lunch. Was um, what small thing in your marriage has made a big difference? What small thing in your marriage has made a big difference? It's a really cool question. And so here were here were a couple of the answers: daily praying together, trying to find at least one time a year whenever you get away, even if you have small kids, even if it's not that complicated, just to be uh, with with your spouse, even if it's not for that long. And then uh, someone said, it's a small thing, but if you can have the mentality that your marriage is the most important thing in your life other than Jesus Christ, and if you're willing to have that mentality, then you're going to be willing to give time, money, and and intentionality to it. Okay, So, uh, small things, tremendous power. John the Baptist and you, if you're in Christ Jesus, are called to do a very small thing that has tremendous power, to be a witness. Okay, Be a witness. Let's look at... The Bible this morning. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. This is God's word. 
Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said to him, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And all this happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. God, we simply ask right now that your word would do the heavy lifting. And I would just be the delivery boy that puts the package in the mailbox. And so, God, would you take my words and the meditation of our hearts together and make them pleasing in your sight as we consider your word and worship over your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Main idea this morning is this, that Christian ministry is powerfully and simply being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. That Christian ministry can be summarized in a way is both powerful and simple in that being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and showing someone how they need to respond. That simply being a faithful witness to the validity and power of who Jesus is, there is wonderful power behind that. And it's also not very complicated. Three points this morning. A faithful witness is not focused on themselves. A faithful witness has the ministry of preparation. A faithful witness is in awe of Jesus. Not focused on themselves, has the ministry of preparation, And a faithful witness is in awe of Jesus. First, a faithful witness is not focused on themselves. So let's talk about John the Baptist's ministry. Let me fill out some of the information that's not given in this specific passage um, about about John the Baptist. So all we have here is this official delegation that shows up that's got Levites and priests and Pharisees in it, okay? And so these were three different groups of people. They were the ones in authority. The, the Levites really at this point in time were just kind, they actually were mostly musicians and temple police, okay? That was the role of the Levites in the Old Testament. They had a different role, okay? And then you've got the priests, which are the ones who bring the sacrifices to God, and then the Pharisees, which are kind of the ground teachers. They are in the synagogues, which are kind of like the local churches that are around the temple, okay? So all of them have an official capacity of authority that they bring, and they're coming in to simply, they're sent a representation for, of, their, of their group to John the Baptist to say, what in the world are you doing? Who are you, and how do you justify everything that's going on? So the reason that they're going to send this official delegation to find out about John the Baptist is because he's rocking the world. He is coming and preaching a gospel of repentance and conversion. Okay, Now, conversion is uh, the essence of who you are needs to change. That's what, that's what conversion is. right? It's something that God does in you to change who you are. Right? 
Uh, in the New Testament, we talk about that, about the God giving you a, a, the Holy Spirit coming in you and changing you. In the Old Testament, they called it circumcising your heart. But the reality of it is the essence of who you are needs to be rolled over into something new. And for a Jewish audience, this was a radical message. Well, you're talking about me? That I need to be converted son of Abraham, circumcised on the eighth day. I got this covered. This, this, you must be talking to those people out there. But he didn't come with that message. He came with a message of that repentance needs to happen now because the Messiah that you've been talking about coming from, the coming here is here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And God's Spirit used John the Baptist in such a way. He traveled from, uh, initially, he traveled from city to city. We read that in, in uh, Mark's gospel in the first chapter, that he traveled from, from city to city in that, in the, around the region of the Jordan, uh, where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea. He traveled around that region preaching that message almost like a town preacher or itinerant preacher that would go from spot to spot to spot. He had the same message. He's here. Repent of your sin. And there was such a groundswell that resulted. God's spirit moved in the people's hearts in such a way. There was such a groundswell that he had to move out into the wilderness. And there were many people. Thousands of Jewish people coming and being baptized uh, and, confessing, and confessing their sins and being baptized. He had a powerful and a strange ministry at the same time. He, he wore a similar garb that a, a, a prophet in the past, Elijah, wore. Camel's hair, leather belt. He, he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, there were, there were strange aspects about his life. And a lot of times God's prophets have strange aspects about their life. Elijah, for example, was fed by ravens. Uh, a widow, he, he, he blessed a, a widow's uh, bread and it, got to, it provided for him for weeks. He raised the widow's son from the dead. There are actually, a lot of the prophets in the Old Testament had strange uh, ministries in that way and John was really no different. But thousands of people are coming, Jews, they're coming and confessing their sins and receiving a baptism. And this baptism is significant because when, when Gentiles, non-Jewish people, would come into the faith, um, a lot of times they would go through a ritual washing. We don't, see a lot, we don't see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the only time you see ritual washings was for purification. So if you had leprosy or some other kind of disease and, and you were healed of that disease, you would go through a washing before you entered the covenant community or you entered worship again. It was a, it was a means of purification. Okay? And in the time between the Old and New Testament, which is about 400 years, by the way. So John comes on the scene after about 400 years of relative silence from God's prophets. Okay? All right? It's not like nothing happened in that time, but there was relative silence from God. Okay? And so John comes on the scene being very prophetic in the way that he's living, right? in, the way that he's, in the way that he's ministering. And he's calling people to baptism. He's telling, he's telling God's people, you need to be purified. You, you need to go through this purification ritual, this, this washing. Okay? Now his baptism was simply that. It was just a symbol of what needed to happen on the inside. It wasn't a new sacrament, a new part of the Jewish religion or any of that. It was simply a symbol 
that you that inside needs to change. He was calling them to what the Bible has been calling humanity to since Genesis chapter 1, faith and repentance. The same thing that God calls us to today. Okay? So that's the context of that's the context of everything that's happening. In John chapter 1, uh, verse 6, we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He had a miraculous birth. His mother was barren. She was old. He had a miraculous birth. And, it's, and it says uh, in Luke that, that the Holy Spirit was, was on John even when he was in the womb. So he was a man sent from God to bear witness, uh, to bear witness. And he didn't mince his words, so he, he, he didn't care about what he looked like. He obviously didn't care about what he ate, and he didn't care how you felt about him. He did not care. The, uh, what, of this scene, we just get like the specific details, and I'll tell you why I think John gives us the specific details about this uh, delegation that comes. But in Matthew uh, chapter 3, we get a little bigger picture of what John says to this delegation that comes. This was his sermon to them. They come walking up, and he says that he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come, and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping repentance. And then he says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Please come back next Sunday. Right? I mean, it was, it was a, it was, here's what he's saying. Y'all are scum. And you, you call yourselves the Jewish leaders, but there's no fruit coming from your life. There's filth coming from your life. And the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and God's about to cut you down in judgment if you don't repent. Pastor, that's what he's saying to him. He didn't care what you thought about him. He was a faithful witness to the truth. That was true about them. We'll see that play out through the rest of this, um, the rest of this gospel. And they come to him... And I spent a lot of time this week trying to, trying to understand all this. I'm going to try to summarize it for you. They come to him and they ask him three uh, very specific questions. And each time he says, no, no, no. And then he says what he is doing. So I'm going to try to explain that briefly for you. Okay? The first question they ask him is, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And they don't, we don't have that written down, but we know by his answer, when it says in verse 20, that he did not fail to confess, but confess freely that I am not the Christ. I'm not the one that you're waiting on. Jews have been waiting on for a long time at this point, a Messiah to come and redeem them and give them back their national prominence that they had lost because they had been conquered time and time and time again. And he's saying, no, I'm, that's not me. I'm not the anointed son of David. I'm not the hope of the entire Bible. He confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Okay? And the second question, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask this question? He looked like Elijah, had the same outfit almost on he brought the thunder and is speaking like Elijah did. And why, why is this question being asked? Well, the last verses of the Old Testament are in Malachi chapter 4, and they read like this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God's going to bring his judgment against the enemies of the Jewish people. Against the enemies of God's people, right? He's going to bring the judgment. Before he does, it says, I'll send you Elijah the prophet. Now, something you need to know about Elijah the prophet, a lot of things happened to him like we talked about before, but the last thing that happened to him in his life is he didn't die. In fact, a chariot of fire, the Bible says, comes down and picks him up and scoops him up to take him into heaven. 
And so the, the major thought of the time was before the Messiah comes, before this great powerful movement of God comes, it's going to change everything, that Elijah's physically going to come back. So they're asking a question. Are you the guy? Or, or they're, what they're probably asking is, do you think you're the guy? Because they didn't think he was, right? Do you think you're Elijah? Do you think that? Right? And John answered, John says, no, I am literally not Elijah. I'm not him. Now, Jesus answers this question and clarifies it for us later on in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 11. That Jesus calls, um, Jesus calls John the Baptist um, the, the spirit uh, of the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay? And um, what, he says, what he says to him in Matthew chapter 11 is that he says that no one that was born from women is greater than John the Baptist. And then verse 13, he says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied about John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now that's confusing. Jesus says he's Elijah. John says he's not Elijah. What's the answer? Right? If we're honest, let's default with Jesus. But what's going on here? Okay, what's going on in this passage? What's happening is John's saying, I'm literally not Elijah. And Jesus is saying, y'all have been misinterpreting this verse. John, Elijah's not literally going to come back as the forerunner. But the one who has the spirit and power of Elijah is. And that was John. And you missed it. Okay? So Jesus is saying, this, he, is, he is the Elijah to come. But what John is responding here is he's saying, I'm not literally Elijah. But Jesus says, but that prophecy in Malachi has been fulfilled. Jesus actually quotes it in Luke chapter 7 about John the Baptist saying it's been fulfilled. All right? Last question that's asked. It's a, are you, are you the prophet? And he says, no. So what's, what is... When they ask, are you the prophet, what, are you, what do they mean here? Again, this is an Old Testament scripture that they were looking forward to being fulfilled. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses is telling the people that after me there will come a prophet after me. There will come a prophet uh, after me. Um, verse 18 of chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and I shall speak to them all that I command him. Okay, so there, the common interpretation of this verse is that there's going to come a great prophet, the prophet, right? And so they're asking, are you this guy? And the reality is, uh, what John says is No. Because Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of that verse. In Deuteronomy 18, the immediate context is he was, Moses was preparing the way, Israel for the next leader, who was Joshua. Saying, hey, there's going to come someone after me. You need to listen to him like you listen to me. And that was Joshua. But this verse has an immediate meaning and then a fulfilled meaning in Jesus Christ. When he is the true prophet. But John is not. He says, no, that's not me. And so this is, this is the, the point that we're making, is that, that John's ministry isn't profound. John's ministry isn't profound because he's focused on himself. He, he doesn't think a whole lot about his ministry. It's profound because he is focused on being a faithful witness. John knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't, and he didn't have to add any power to it. And this was clarifying and freedom freeing to him. 
John doesn't have to go. One of the reasons that he could speak with such courage and power is because he wasn't trying to prove himself. He was just trying to give testimony and credence to who Jesus was. And if we are going to have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to have the same power and conviction and courage that John the Baptist had to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ, it needs not to be about you or about me, but about the one that we're giving testimony to. If you're a Christian, you are called to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ every single day with your life in your mouth. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. This is Jesus' last words. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, that you have the responsibility to take a witness, a testimony about Jesus Christ into every sphere of your life, wherever you live, work, study, or play. And the power of that comes not from focusing on yourself, but about the one that who come, you come to give testimony to. Secondly, this morning, Christian ministry is powerfully and simply being a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Number two, uh, a faithful witness has the ministry of preparation. A faithful witness ministry has a, a faithful witness has a ministry of preparation. So this delegation is, is at the end of its wits. They, okay, you're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah, you're not the prophet. Well, then who are you? And, and John quotes, and when he's describing himself, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, and he says, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert, make straight the ways of the Lord. Now, a little bit about, the, he's quoting Isaiah, a little bit about Isaiah. It, Isaiah spends about 39 chapters laying the hammer to people. Just, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from your sin. Y'all are terrible. Just, just really in a very prophetic tone, y'all need to turn away from your sin. And then in chapter 40, the tone changes slightly when he says, Comfort, comfort my people Israel. All these things I told you, the destruction, the judgment, the Babylonian empire, all these things that are going to happen, they're going to happen, they're going to come in, but then you're going to be restored. God in his mercy, despite your sin, is going to restore you. And then verse 3 says, whenever you've been dispersed into all the nations, whenever the enemies come in and and ransack Jerusalem and everything and you're dispersed into all the nations, what's going to happen is God's going to bring you back and there are going to be so many people coming back that they're going to have to make a highway. They're going to have to pave a highway in the middle of the desert so that all the people can come back into Jerusalem. That what There wasn't a road and now there's a road. It's a difficult place to make a road, but there's going to be a road made, and they're all going to come back. And John uses that prophecy about what he's doing as an example of what he's doing. He's saying, my job is to take the wilderness and the darkness that's surrounding me and to cut a road right in the middle of it to help people get to Jesus Christ. I want to take the obstacles, the sand dunes, the mountains, the trees, the shrubbery, whatever's in the way, and I want to chop it down to make a, make a way. That's what he's saying. See, now, I... I That is how I view, I want to make straight the way for the Lord. I want to prepare people to be able to understand Jesus Christ. And I'll show you in just a minute the impact that that had on the Pharisees and on the people who actually listened to John. Okay, And again, that's a big part of what, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that God is calling you to do. And if you're struggling about where you are, maybe you're examining uh, the Christian faith uh, this morning, that may be a big part of what God's doing through his word in your life right now. 
is removing some of the obstacles that are in the way and making things straight. And being a faithful witness to people that are around you in your different walks of life is just simply that. It might be a ministry of preparation where people that you know have legitimate problems. They have, or, or let me say it a different way, they have legitimate questions. Maybe they had a really terrible experience with, with, with religion or the church. Maybe they have no concept of who Jesus really was. Maybe they, like the Jews in this specific passage, were relying on their lineage or relying on their religious background. And you can come into that, that moment in time in, in their life and, and present the reality of who Jesus is. Maybe you just need to answer their questions. Our ministry as part of a witness is a, is a ministry of preparing people to understand the validity of who Jesus is. You know, I get an opportunity to do this all the time. It's, it's, it's my favorite thing to do. To be able to sit down with someone and just answer their questions, go through the word of God and be able to explain to them. And all I have to do is prepare. You know who does the heavy lifting? God does. You know who does the heavy lifting? The word of God does. But people need to know who he is. Someone's got to be the witness. Someone's got to help prepare the way. John did that. He not only explained to them the reality of who, of the, who the Messiah was and that he was here now, but he called them to turn from their sin. That there's a real and legitimate problem in your life, and it's killing you. And the desperate need that you have is to have that problem solved. Turn away from your sin. Open your eyes to the beauty and grace that's found in God. What is he doing? He's preparing the way to God. He's telling them about the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's telling them about the reality of what won't save them. He says, listen, if you're relying on the fact that you're children of Abraham, if you're relying on the fact that you're a good southern kid, and you're just here because, like, you know, I'm at that age in life, and my kids probably need some structure of religion, so I'll come back to church. It's not going to cut it. You need to have a vibrant relationship with the God of glory, the glorious God-man. And part of our responsibility is to prepare the way. Y'all tracking with me? All right, last point this morning. Uh, last point this morning is that a faithful witness is in awe of Jesus. I love, uh, or in awe of God. I love how this passage ends. John says, John says I baptize with water. It's just a symbol. It's just a symbol. John's baptism and what we do in Christianity and Christian baptism, not the same thing. Not the same thing. Not, even, not at all. John's baptism was almost a symbol of the purification that needed to happen inside. Our, our baptism is a symbol of the, of the association and the covenant acceptance of God into the new covenant. So it's a different thing entirely, right? But what does he say in the back half of that verse? He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you don't, do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's saying this, this one who comes, who's coming is so glorious, he's so amazing, he's so, prof, he's so profound he, that I can't, I can't even untie his shoes. And here's something important to know. In this time, uh, whenever you were a student of, of someone, whenever you were their disciple, you followed them around and that you were essentially their slave. So teachers who teach in school, imagine if your students felt about you like that, right? Your, your life would get a lot easier instantaneously. But you did everything that they asked you to do. That was part of your training. If they asked you to take all the garbage, you did it. They asked you to take this message somewhere, you did it. That was what it meant to be a disciple. That's what it meant to be a student with someone, with one exception. You didn't take off their shoes. You couldn't even find a slave to do that. 
He wouldn't take off his shoes. So John speaks into that cultural reality and says, I'm not even unworthy to unstrap his sandal. That's how glorious the one that I'm trying to make the way straight to is. And if you want to be a powerful witness of Jesus Christ, then God has to be elevated to that status in your mind and heart. You have to see the, the Messiah, the coming one, the glorious God-man that the entire first chapter is, is speaking to. The fact that, the, that all the one, the one who's by his word created the universe came and indwelt a human body. You have to be in awe of the reality of who God is and the fact that he loved you enough to spill his own blood. That eternal God blood was spent on your behalf. And if that reality blows your mind and calls your life to a different level of devotion, then you will be a powerful and effective witness. John was. If in your life you viewed your religion, if you viewed your connection to God, if you viewed what this is as the church, as so um, important that everything else paled in comparison, that you, that you would view yourself in such a way like John did, that I can't even untie his sandals. He's so holy and amazing and righteous and good. Then your witness would have some pop to it. In Luke chapter 7, it's a really interesting verse. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And in verse 29, Luke says this, that all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. In other words, when they heard Jesus' words about John the Baptist, they acknowledged, you know what, what you're saying about Messiah, what you're saying about my sin, I need that. I need that. So in other words, they believed the gospel at that moment. And this is what is right after that. That, that they acknowledged that God's way was right because, listen to this, I'm not making it up, I'm just reading from the Bible. This is John chapter 7, verse 29. That they believed that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. In other words, the, the preparation that, that John came to do worked. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, they saw him for who he was. And John's baptism had a role in that. The, 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 the witness and the testimony that John had in the baptism had a role in helping them understand who Jesus was so that after Jesus gives this speech, they get it, and it says, because they've been baptized by John. But listen to verse 30. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose from themselves because they had not been baptized by John. You know the strange reality? I don't know why God does this. He just does. But God uses us as his people to provide a witness to the validity of who Jesus is and how we live our life and what we say from our mouth in a similar way to what John did. And because of John's witness, because of his preparation, and because he called people to respond to God, to respond to their sin in light of the holiness of God, because he did that, people understood who Jesus was and turned. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me. It's simple, but it's profound. 
and by being a witness to the validity of Jesus Christ and what's happened in your life as a result of that. By living those implications out, that people will understand the glorious God-man. And I know some of you are looking for purpose. You're asking that question. What am I supposed to do with my life? This is a pretty good thing. Be a powerful witness to the glorious God-man. And we will watch as the light turns on in people and their lives change as a result of meeting him. Amen? Father in heaven, we come to you today as a witness. We are sitting here as a witness that we believe in the glorious God-man and all that he is, all that he came to do, and all that he is doing. John the Baptist was a witness to those realities. And you call us to do the same in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you help us like John the Baptist to be in awe of you? Would you help us even as we sing this final song to worship you in spirit and truth and be in awe of you and to be faithful tomorrow to be a faithful witness? We ask in Jesus' name.